the good news is that we're halfway through the book. The bad news is that we're halfway through the book. Um, I just really love this book and, and obviously wish it was longer. But um, in all cases, by God's grace, we'll, we'll aim to cover chapters five and six today. Uh, but before that, before we do that, I, I just want to give a quick recap of last week to kind of refresh our memory uh, of what we discussed. So last week, we covered the bridegroom's love letter to the bride, or really God's love letter to us, which could be found in chapter four. Uh, in that chapter, the bridegroom or Christ goes into uh, very specific details about the features of the bride. Uh, those features symbolize different things. So for example, dove's eyes symbolize, it symbolizes us being led by the Holy Spirit. Um, the hair that was you know, on the head that covers the head uh, symbolizes us putting Christ in the center of our life, just as, you know, uh, just as hair covers the head, you know, we are, uh, we are surrounded, uh, we surround Christ. Um, having a pure mouth, loving God and, and our neighbor, since one cannot exist without the other, uh, having faith in the midst of our struggles and so on. We talked about the importance of contemplation on nature, uh, because it's through this visible created world that we could see Christ himself. Uh, we also talked a little bit about our spiritual comfort zone and how we need to be well equipped for the spiritual battle. Um, we talked about faith and, and we said that faith is a, is a start of our progress to attain uh, greater gifts. Uh, it's this faith that allows us to empty ourselves for God and, and, and fight that spiritual fight. Uh, we, we also talked about, you know, that through suffering and through the suffering that we endure, be it in our spiritual life or just life in general, like the inner eye of the heart is what captivates the heart of God. You know, in, in those times, no words are, are needed to be spoken. Um, but rather, you know, the pain and the suffering is, is the language that the heart kind of uh, speaks, right? Um, so the heart in that case does the speaking and crying on our behalf. And that's what captivates God's love and, and gets his attention in the midst of everything that we go through. Kind of like just like St. Peter or the sinful woman who washed Christ's feet. You know, in those times when they were repenting and when they were suffering and going through a difficult time, they didn't really say anything for Christ to feel what was inside their heart. Because their heart, you know, through their tears, did the talking for them. And it's kind of the same thing for us in, that, in, the, in the sense that in, our, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the spiritual struggle that we go through, you know, we just have our inner eyes locked onto God. And that's what kind of gets his attention. We also spoke about, you know, God's words of affirmation to us in the midst of our struggle uh, as a way to kind of give us confidence in the midst of everything that we go through. You know, God compliments our love for him, uh, even though he's the source of that love. He praises us for that love. He gives us credit for that love and even rewards us for that love. But the irony in all of it is that he is the source of everything, but he still gives us credit out of his love for us. Well, we also talked about, you know, our hearts being an enclosed garden uh, that Christ comes and dwells in. And once he's in there, nothing else can enter. And then, you know, and in that, once he's in there, we, we are complete and lack absolutely nothing. So with that said, let me know if you have any questions or comments that you may have left over from last week uh, before we move on to uh, today's section. Cool. If there's nothing, I'll just uh, continue on to chapter five. So if you could turn your Bibles to chapter five, verses one through nine. Uh, I'll give you guys a second there and then uh, we'll start. 
Cool. So the the uh, sorry, verse one says, "I came into my garden, O my sister, my bride. I harvested my myrrh with my spices. I ate my bread with my honey and drank my wine with my milk. O friends, eat and drink, and O brothers, drink abundantly." I, this is the bride answering or responding. Uh, I sleep, but my eyes, my heart keeps watch. The voice of my beloved, he knocks at the door. Open for me, my sister, my companion, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and my locks of hair with the drops of the night. I have taken off my tunic. How can I put it back on? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them? My beloved puts his hand by the opening of the door and my heart was stirred by him. I arose to open to my beloved, my hands dripped with myrrh upon the handles of the door. I opened it for my beloved, but my beloved had passed by. My soul went after him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who, ens who encircled the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guards of the walls removed my veil. I implore you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the hosts and the powers of the field, if you find my beloved, what should you tell him? that I am wounded with love. This is the daughter of Jerusalem responding. What is your beloved more than another beloved? My beautiful one among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you implore us? So going back to last week, the last verse in chapter four was the bride asking the wind, which we said kind of, you know, it symbolizes the Holy Spirit to come and blow through the garden so that the beloved comes and eats of its fruit. Now, here we see the bridegroom coming to that garden and the partaking of its fruit. Uh, he says, chapter one, in verse one, I'm sorry, I came into my garden. So, which is, you know, like I said, which is really is us asking the Holy Spirit to work in us so that our hearts become a dwelling place for Christ. Um, as we discussed before, as soon as, you know, as, we soon as, as, we, as soon as we call on to, upon Christ to come into our hearts, he responds right away. He doesn't hesitate. It, in Isaiah, it says, uh, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will hear and he will say, here I am. Right here, Christ comes into our hearts and, and takes our pain as his pain. This is why, that's why it says, harvested my myrrh with spices. You know, he eats honey and drinks milk as if he's entered the promised land of our hearts. Uh, he finds comfort in our hearts. You know, he drinks the wine, which symbolizes his love and joy that he pours on us by his Holy Spirit. And that milk, which symbolizes purity, and holiness. He partakes of that because he's the one that you know, gives it to us. Uh, he becomes so joyful to find, all, to find all this in our hearts that he invites others uh, with him to come into the garden, right? It says, uh, oh, friends, eat and drink. Oh, brothers, drink abundantly. So who are these friends uh, and, and brothers that are referred to in this verse? Um, Father Tedder says, they are the heavenly creatures who rejoice over one sinner who repents more than 99 righteous who do not repent. These enter the heart with the Lord, not to reign, but as the soldiers of the heavenly king and friends of the bridegroom. Saying with John the Baptist, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So you know, ultimately, as, as Christ said, the kingdom of heaven is in each and every single one of us. Because he dwells inside each and every single one of us. And, and it's beautifully illustrated here with these very poetic words. Um, and again, this is because of the work of the Holy Spirit that's inside each one of us. Any questions there before I kind of move on into, um, into the chapter? All right. So uh, the next two verses, 
Um, it says, I sleep, but my heart keeps watch. The voice of my beloved, he knocks at the door. Open for me, my sister, my companion, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and my locks of hair with the drops of the night. I have taken off my tunic. How can I put it back on? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them? These two verses really leave me in awe because it shows how loving, how humble, and how much God really wants me and how I respond in, the, in certain times, right? So let's see how that kind of um, shakes out. Let's just do a quick recap of history, right? You know, starting from the beginning of time, man neglected his salvation by disobeying God. And since then, God, out of his love for man, has consistently pursued man, right? God gave us the natural law, but we disregarded it. Uh, as it says in Romans, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and were foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So he gave us the natural law. He gave us the written law, uh, but we failed to obey it. He sent us prophets, but we ignored them. So really the the only thing that was left for God to do was for himself to come and knock on the doors of our hearts, right? To get our attention because we, we, we were blind to everything else around us. But in that relationship, even though we, we have accepted him or some of us have accepted him, it, you know, it's, <laughs> it becomes, it, we become lukewarm in our relationship with him, right? Uh, that's why it says, I sleep. So, it, you know, it, it's the disciples, although they loved Christ, you couldn't really stay up with him. So, and it's the same with us sometimes, right? We love Christ, but sometimes we just get a little bit lazy in our spiritual life. But the beauty of this verse is that it shows that Christ still looks at us and still and doesn't stop knocking at the door of our heart and to gently remind us to open to him, right? It's as if he's already, if it's, it's as if his, what he's done on the cross wasn't sufficient, right? So he still humbly comes to us and out of his pure love, right? He does it in a very gentle way. He doesn't make us feel bad for being lukewarm, but he encourages us and calls us his sister, his love, his dove, his perfect one, right? And you know, I, I get why he calls us perfect. And that's because we are in him and, and he is perfect. But I just can't wrap my mind around how he still calls us perfect despite our imperfectness, right? Despite our lukewarmness that sometimes we feel towards him at times. You know, it, it truly is a testament to his love and to his grace towards us. Nothing else could really explain it. And here, you know, here you see that he asks for us to open to him because of what he's gone through for us, right? It says in the verse that my head is wet with dew and my locks of hair with drops of the night. This is speaking of the extreme sorrow, the extreme suffering that he endured for us, starting from, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, where his sweat became great drops of blood and moving on to through Good Friday, right? He, he being the head of the church and really our soul, carried the divine wrath in his body for us. Uh, as it says in Isaiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Right? So this is this is how he's trying to get our attention. This is how he's trying to convince us to open to him. Like he's saying, open to me because I took your punishment. You know, open to me because I took on the Father's wrath for your sake. I carried your sin in my body. You know, I carried the crown of thorns on my head for you. So open for me. 
No, he could just say, you know, I'm God, open for me because I told you so. You know, I'm going to make you love me regardless. But he doesn't do that out of his love and respect for our free will. So instead, he tries to give us a reason to open to him. Uh, St. Athanasius puts it and says, God uses the method of persuasion and advice and not violence or force to get our attention. Right? He tries to convince us to open to him through love. You know, can you imagine God, the, the creator, <laughs> trying to convince and persuade his creation of something? It just, you know, it's, it's hard to put it into words. But this is how God pleads with us, even though we are the ones that should be pleading with him. And how do I respond sometimes, right? I say, I have taken off my tunic. How can I put it back on? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them? I come up with excuses to my lukewarmness, right? If, if I consider God's love for me, how easy would it be to get up and open the door of my heart to him? And how easy would it be for me to give him my life in return of what he's done for me? But sometimes I'm more concerned about my comfort than, than opening the door of my heart to him, right? Letting him in. Um, God is calling me to the wedding, but I'm, I'm making excuses not to attend. Uh, the bride says, I have taken off my tunic. I have washed my feet. Now, ironically enough, Christ is the one who covers us, right? As it says in, in Zechariah, I will clothe you with rich robes. Or even in the story of the prodigal son, the father is the one that puts on, that puts the robe on the son. You know, Christ is the one who washes us, just as he washed the disciples' feet. So whatever excuse I'm giving Christ for my lukewarmness, I need to set it aside and I need to go to him because he's the only remedy to my lukewarmness, Right? Oh, I'm tired. Christ said, come to me. You are weary and I'll give you rest. Oh, I'm weak. Christ said, I'll strengthen and help you. Uh, I'm sick. You know, Christ says, I'll restore you to health and heal your wounds. You know, he's the one who will clothe me. He's the one that will wash me. He's the one that will do everything for me. There is no, no excuse that we could come up with that Christ doesn't have a response for or that he can't help us overcome, right? There's nothing too big for Christ. So, you know, honestly, I, I can't... <laughs> I can't really stress how amazing these two verses are. They are truly, truly humbling in so many ways. Um, as we continue to go through the rest of this chapter, we'll, we'll see even more of God's love towards us. Um, with that said, let's take some time to consider some of the excuses that we may be giving God for our lukewarmness, right? Whatever the excuses are, though, let's not beat ourselves up too much over them. Let's just simply run and open the door of our hearts and let him do the rest. We come as we are, despite everything that's going on, and he takes care of us, right? So I hope that kind of gives a, a little bit of a, a clear, clarity on, on, on that verse. Um, but if you have any questions or any comments, please feel free to share. All right, so I'll take that just to move on. So uh, in the next verses, it says, my beloved put his hand by the opening of the door and my heart was stirred by him. I arose to open to my beloved, my hands dipped with myrrh upon the handles of the door. I opened it for my beloved, but my beloved had passed by. My soul went after him, but did not find it. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who encircled the city found me. They struck and wounded me. The guards of the walls removed my veil. I implore you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the hosts and the powers of the field. If you find my beloved, what should you tell him? That I am wounded with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, my beautiful one among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you implore us? So 
after Christ calls us and tells us to open to him because of what his, he went through for us, and after we give him an excuse to our lukewarmness, he still tries by extending out his hand to us to show us the wounds of the cross in his body, right? It says, um, he, my brother put his hand through the opening of the door. So it's exactly the same as Thomas, right? When, when Christ appeared to the disciples, initially Thomas wasn't with them. But when they told him that Christ appeared to them, he said that unless you know, I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in his, nail, in his side, and uh, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll not believe, right? So what does Christ do? He appears to him and shows him the wounds of the cross in his body, so that, and it stirred him, right? stirred his heart. So likewise, Christ extends his wounded hand through the door of our hearts and says, you know, you know this is <laughs> open for me, right? To show us his, so, so that we could learn for him, to yearn for him, to show, for him to show us his love, right? So that we desire him, so that we stop giving him excuses. You know, Christ doesn't go in, but he simply sticks his hand through the door and say, as if to say, like, look at my wounded hands, look at, look at my wounded feet, look at my pierced side, look at the marks of the thorns on my head. You know, he invites us just as he invited Thomas to see his hand so that, you know, so we could see the extent of his love for us. And, you know, just like Thomas, you know, after seeing Christ's wound, we cry out and say to him, my Lord and my God, we get up to open to him. You know, we realize the magnitude of his love towards us. So we willingly get up to unlock the door of our hearts and to receive him so that we can dine with him and he can dine with us. You know, but how do we get up, right? It, it, the, the, the verse says, uh, I arose to open to my beloved, my hands dipped with myrrh upon the handles of the door, right? So this symbolizes repentance. The myrrh symbolizes repentance. So we get up and ask God for forgiveness, for shutting him out. For asking for forgiveness for not loving him as much as we should, uh, forgiveness for our lukewarmness, forgiveness for the time that we wasted far from him, forgiveness for our sins, really, right? We offer true repentance because, you know, as St. John Climacus puts it, repentance is a renewal of baptism. Repentance is a contract with God for a second life. Repentance is a buyer of humility. Repentance is constant distress of bodily comfort. You know, so you know, whatever bodily excuse that we could give you know to to god you know repentance takes care of that repentance is self-condemning reflection and carefree self-care repentance is a daughter of hope and the renunciation of despair right so repentance reminds us of our condition and how much we need god so we go up you know we go to the door of our hearts and open to him and and god in his faithfulness responds right god in his faithfulness forgives now, as it says in Isaiah, let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Right? So our God is a God of forgiveness. Our God is a, is a God of unlimited second chances. So don't wait on repentance, you know, but let it be part of your daily process of taking off the old man and putting on the new one. It's never too late to repent, regardless of how lazy, you know, I may have been in the past. God is always willing to accept us uh, into his divine embrace. You know, what, what happens next is interesting, right? We see, you know, the bride after deciding to get up and open the door for her beloved, that he's no longer there. And, you know, how she called, and he says, you know, I called him and he didn't answer. I, I, I looked for him, but I find him. We talked about the reasons why at times we go, you know, we call on God and, and he doesn't answer us um, or, or look for him and we can't find him when we, back in chapter three. So I won't spend time rehashing it, but just as a quick reminder, 
you know, that happens in our spiritual walk sometimes because either something in our heart is blinding us from, from seeing God clearly. So we feel that we can't find him or we, or we don't hear him. Or, or it's God, you know, taking a step back uh, purposefully to bring our attention back to him. You know, when we lose something, we, we search for it. Uh, because, you know, in those moments, we realize that we need God. So we work hard to try to find him uh, through perseverance and, and through um, spiritual zeal. You know, we also said that even though you know, God does take a step back, he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't abandon us. Uh, but it's more of a more of a wake up call. You know, as God said uh, in Isaiah 54, it says, for a mere moment, I have forsaken you. But with great mercies, I'll gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you. So even though we might not see him, we're not pay him at, at times, he doesn't abandon us, he's there. But it just you know, takes a little bit more effort on our, uh, like we said, when we, when we covered this part in chapter three. So also, you know, if you recall back in chapter three, the watchman found the bride as she was searching for her beloved, right? Here, they find her again. But interestingly, you know, the bride says, they struck and wounded me, right? Why would they strike her and wound her? You know, the first time around, they were kind of, you know, trying to help her find the beloved. This time, they struck and wounded her. Father Tedro says, the watchman here referred to the ministers of the church. He says, all the ministers have to hide behind the word of God when preaching to the lukewarm. Those souls that have become lukewarm feel chastised and wounded by the ministers of the word of God, which is like a sword that kills evil and expels it from their souls. It's also like a mirror that reveals the weakness of man. The wounds and the chastisement were neither made to annoy those souls or to mock them, but they were the wounds of love, which lead to repentance. You know, so it's, you know, the, the, it's the, the ministers or more specifically the priests are there because, you know, they use the word of God to, to, to wake us up. Right. Even though these, even though sometimes it's rough, sometimes we, we don't like to hear what they have to say. Right. But it's because, you know, this chastisement, right. If you will, it's, it's not for, it's not to hurt us, right. But it's our, for, for our benefit. Just as St. Paul said, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me. Right. So, you know, if, 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 if a priest makes you sorrowful over your sins, you know, if you go to repentance, that's how you make him glad. That's how you make God glad. So, God puts people in our lives, more specifically, you know, priests, to wake us up when it's needed, right? Even though their words sometimes are rough, right? And sometimes are tough. Sometimes that's, but that's sometimes exactly the remedy that's needed for us to respond. You know, a heavy sleeper uh, is, needs, a, needs a really, really loud alarm, right? So sometimes we need that tough love from our father of confession to give us that jolt that we need to continue along the spiritual path. Um, so, if your father of confession or the priest of your church is tough on you, it's for your edification. You know, all they want is your salvation. And, and God speaks through them uh, to wake us up when it's needed. I, I promise you, uh, Abuna didn't pay me to say this, but this is just something that uh, we should all know and trust that they have um, our benefit at heart. They, they, there is no, uh, there's no partiality with them in, in, in our salvation. So I still have to say that it gladdens my heart to hear that, Jack. And, and yes, Jack did not receive an endorsement to say that. <laughs> I did, I promise. <laughs> um, so finally, when others see us working hard to find Christ, they wonder who he is, right? Who is he that we're working so hard to find? Uh, kind of like what, what the last verse says, 
You know, what is your beloved more than another beloved, my beautiful one among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you implore us? Right. So, you know, <laughs> the why is it, you know, some people see the effort that we put in, whether it's in the service, whether it's in our spiritual life, whether whatever that have you and say, you know, what's the big deal? You know, what's wh- who is this God that you are serving? What's the what's the big deal about him? Um you know, they could easily say that you're doing just fine. Just as it says here, you know, my beautiful one among women. So they recognize our beauty. So what's the point of working hard for our spiritual life? But let's not fall into that thought. You know, we need God. We need our bridegroom, no matter how much or how long it takes to find him. No matter how tough the spiritual road is. No matter how narrow the gate is. Just like St. Peter said, where shall we go? You know, Christ has the words of eternal life. So you know, this is, this is the, this is the beloved is our everything. The beauty about us is everything. This is why we search for him, no matter how long it takes. So I pray that our hearts are stirred by God's love for us, that we go running to him with a repentant heart, you know, searching for him because he's yearning for us to be with him really. Um, so that's, you know, this is, the, this is the little, you know, little contemplation I have on this part, but uh, if you guys have any questions uh, or comments, please feel, feel free to speak up. All right. So moving on to uh, verses 10 through 16 in chapter 5. So <clears throat> it, this is a bright talking now. It says, keep in mind the last verse. The last verse is the, the, uh, the, the daughter of Jerusalem asking who her beloved is. So she responds and says, my beloved is white, white and ruddy, chief among countless thousands. His head is like refined gold. His locks of hair are shiny and black like raven's feathers. His eyes are like those of doves sitting by the pool of water, having eyes bathed in milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like bowls of spices pouring forth perfumes. His lips are lilies dripping choice myrrh. His hands are like elaborate gold set with precious stones. His stomach is like an ivory tablet inlaid with sapphire stones. His legs are like pillars of marble established on golden feet. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as a cedar trees. His mouth is most sweet and altogether desirable. This is my beloved, O companion, O daughters of Jerusalem. So as we just discussed, you know, because, the lo- because of you know, our love for God, people begin to wonder who God is. You know, here the bride responds to the daughters of Jerusalem and describes the bridegroom in detail, just as he described her in, in chapter 4. Here she describes him. So you know, she starts off by saying that he is white and ready. You know, Christ, you know, keep that. This is a bridegroom, right? He's white because he's pure, but he's also red, because, which is what ready means, because of the blood that he redeemed us with. You know, in, in some translations, it will say that he is the shining light, uh, because obviously Christ is the son of righteousness who shone on us, just kind of as, as we covered in, in Malachi. So as it says in Isaiah, that people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those who are living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. So Christ is that light. Christ, Christ is that, you know, he's white and ruddy. That the white and ruddy also signifies his divinity, uh, which wasn't separated from his humanity, right? Um, Bede, who is one of the church fathers, says, The beloved is white because when he appeared in the flesh, he committed no sin, nor was the lie found in his mouth. And he is red because he washed away our sins with his blood. He is rightly called white first, then red, because the Holy One came first into the world from blood and later departed from the world through his bloody passion, right? So that's why we see that she describes him as white and ruddy. What also stood out to me 
is that the two colors are inseparable in the sense, you know, Christ's glory, which is white, came from the shame of the cross, which is, you know, the blood. And as it says in Hebrews, look into Jesus, the, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, right? So this is why he's white and ready. Then she goes on to say that he's the chief among countless thousands. And this just describes Christ's preeminence above all, right? It reminds me of the verse in Colossians 1 where St. Paul describes uh, Christ as the firstborn of all creation. That obviously doesn't mean that Christ was created or anything like that because Christ is one with the Father. He's the image of the Father. But the term firstborn stresses the source of creation. You know, the actual word in Greek is prototokos. Proto means first and tokos means like birth giver. So Christ, you know, she's She's praising Christ because he's the birth giver of creation. He's the birth giver of, of everything, right? He's, he's preeminent. So that, that term stresses like superior, superiority and priority rather than like origin or, or birth of somebody. So it's saying that Christ is superior to all because it's through him that creation came to exist. Um, Seth, Seth puts it simply and says he, he's called the firstborn because in him creation came to be, right? So as his bride, we praise him because he's the chief among all. Uh, creation. So next she goes on to talk about his head and says that it's gold and locks of hair are shiny and black. Gold refers to the to the heavenly life where Christ is, you know, he's seated at the right hand of God, because you know, Christ being the head of the church. So what's what's interesting to know uh, is that, you know, since Christ is the head of the church, and the church is his body, we dwell where he dwells, right? So, and, and so in Christ, we are in the bosom of the Father. The head and the body cannot be in separate places. So we are one with him, where we are one, where, we, where he is. We spoke you know, about the hair last time, uh, and, and we said that it symbolizes a church being around Christ as the hair surrounds the head. Here, it's described as shiny and black because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, he, he's timeless. He doesn't grow old. So we, as his church, also remain timeless, right? We don't grow old in our, in our spiritual life. Um, next are the eyes, right? He says his eyes are like those of doves sitting by a pool of water, having eyes bathed in milk and fitly set. So Father Tezra says that the eyes of Christ are his servants who guide others towards Christ through the Holy Spirit working in them, right? They bring Christ, they bring others to Christ. Uh, through baptism so obviously that speaks of you know the priests because they're the ones that baptize but even servants could bring other people to church or anybody really could bring people to church and and they're baptized um and those are you know and those who are baptized receive the the undefiled milk that you see here that it's spoken of here um and you know everybody that is baptized in christ becomes fitly set right because you know we are in christ and nobody could take us apart and that's why it says um, having eyes bathed in milk and fitly set. Um, next are the cheeks. Uh, his cheeks are like bowls of spices pouring forth perfumes. The cheeks, spices, and pouring forth perfumes are, are Christ's cheeks that were mocked, slapped, and spat on. Uh, as Christ says, I offer, as I, sorry, as Isaiah says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. So we praise God, we glorify him for his suffering on our behalf. From there, the, the bride compliments the lips and says they are lilies dripping choice myrrh. Uh, the lily in this case, you know, refers to royal glory. Uh, as Father Tedros puts it, Christ said, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
Notice that the lips of Christ give us the words of eternal life, which is glorious. Now, it's St. Peter who, who represents the church confessed. Right? It's eternal. His words are eternal. Uh, next are the hands, which are like elaborate gold set with precious stones. So as we said before, gold represents heaven, which is eternal. So his hands are eternally satisfying our soul, right? Eternally providing for our needs. Um, precious stones, or in some translations, it says beryl. Beryl was mentioned in the Old Testament to refer to a laying of a foundation, right? As a building underneath it, they put, you know, beryl as it too, so that's set. So I personally love this part because, you know, if <laughs> it's a, it shows that Christ gives us and provides for us faithfully, regardless of how unfaithful we are to him, right? His faithfulness towards us is set. Um, it, you know, if, if I sit back and just think about how faithful God has been to me, despite my unfaithfulness, it just leaves me speechless, right? God is so patient, so long-suffering to us. He doesn't quit on us. He doesn't dangle our needs in front of us to get us to do what he wants, right? He just gives unconditionally. Like it says in the absolution um, of the first hour in the Agbeya, you know, it says he lets his shine, sun shine on the righteous and the wicked. There is no partiality with him. And, and I really just love that part. He continually gives us, provides for us, and that is set regardless of our actions and our sins. Next, she compliments the stomach as an ivory tablet. Uh, the stomach here symbolizes God's love and compassion, like the core of everything, right? Uh, it's compared to ivory in this case because ivory is extracted from elephants through suffering. You know, the elephant more or less has to be killed for the ivory to be extracted. So likewise, you know, Christ suffered and died for us out of his deep love and compassion. You know, so that's why it's compared to ivory. And that's why it's, she, you know, we, we praise him for that. Uh, the legs are compared to uh, pillars on marble established on golden feet. Uh, the legs here, according to St. Gregory of Nyssa, are those, he says, those are the persons who support and bear the body of the church by exemplary lives and sound words. Through them, the base of our faith is firm. The course of virtue is completed and the entire body is raised on high by our longing for God's promise. Truth and stability guide the church's body. Gold represents truth. Christ is the truth upon whom are founded the legs of or pillars of the church, you know. So, in his essence, anybody who faithfully walks and you know faithfully and firmly walks in Christ, you know, are the legs of Christ, right? Because we walk to spread the news of the gospel. Uh, it says his leg, his appearance is like Lebanon. Um, not so much now, but Lebanon was at, at some point a beautiful place that people would go and you know to vacation and to honeymoon. Um, Father Tedder says, in the same manner, the compassionate, smiling countenance of the Lord Jesus makes the soul who wants to live a spiritual marital life with the Lord rejoice. So Christ is beautiful, not just in appearance, but because of what he did for us to save and to redeem us. Right? Because this is where we find his, our, our comfort. This is the, the spiritual honeymoon that is everlasting, is in Christ and Christ alone. And lastly, she mentions how sweet his mouth is. No, so it's very similar to, uh, to what David said in Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. When we, so when we know and live the words of Christ, we find them to be words of eternal life. Um, it says in, in Psalm 18, the law of the Lord is pure, converting souls. The ordinance of the Lord is straight, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is a light, enlightening the eyes from afar. So God's words become the gateway for us 
to know more about him and to continue to progress um, in our spiritual walk, empowered through his word to fight spiritually. You know, uh, Father Tadjou says the sweetness of his words lies in its power and authority. So he does not give mere commandments or warning or advice, but gives power to implement the words. Then the commandments lifts man to enter into the knowledge of the mysteries of heaven, and the soul is elevated from glory to glory, continuously carrying the mystery of an endless new power. So God doesn't just give commandments, right? But he provides us with, this, with the strength to carry out those commandments. And by his words, you know, we come to know him and our soul is elevated to him. Um, finally, when she's, run out of, when she's run out of words, she says that he's altogether lovely or altogether desirable. You know, sometimes when one really dwells on God and his goodness, there are no words that could be put together to describe that love, to describe that goodness to describe that gratitude that we have towards him. So all that, you know, all that we could say is, Lord, you are altogether lovely, right? We spoke last week about the eye of the heart looking towards God in the time of need. It's very, it's a very similar concept, right? It's the eyes of the heart that look to God. It's a language of the heart that speaks on our behalf in these times and, and just looks and says, you're altogether lovely, right? So my question to you tonight is when someone asks you, who is your beloved more than another beloved? How are you going to describe him, right? How will you describe your beloved? Um, I know that was uh, a little bit, uh, it was a lot, and, and I know I covered it quickly, but I, I hope that it, it you know, it, it clarifies some of the symbolisms behind um, the words that we see here. So with that said, this kind of, this concludes chapter five. Um, but if you have any questions or anything, please feel free to speak up before I move on to chapter six. All right, so that we'll move on to chapter six. Cool. So if you could turn to um, chapter six, verses one through thirteen. All right, cool. So the daughters of Jerusalem continue to say, "Where has your beloved gone, your beautiful one woman? Where has your beloved turned his attention? For we will seek him with you." My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spice, to shepherd his sheep in the gardens, and to gather his lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He who shepherds his sheep among the lilies. You are beautiful, my companion. You are my good pleasure. You are as beautiful as Jerusalem. You are as awesome as an army set in array. This is the bridegroom speaking. Uh, I think it, I, I just didn't put it on the slide here. My apologies. It says, turn away your eyes from before me, for they have ravished me. Your hair is like flocks of goats coming down from Gilead. Your teeth are as flocks of sheep that are sheared, which came up from the washing. All of them bear twins, and none of them is barren. Your lips are like scarlet thread, and your manner of speech is lovely. Your cheeks outside you veil are like the rind of pomegranate. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines, and, mating, and maidens without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, and she is the one of her mother, the only one of her mother, the choice of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and considered her blessed. The queens and the concubines will also praise her. Who is she who looks forth as the early morning, beautiful as the moon, choice as the sun, awesome as armies set in array? I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the fruits of the valley, to see that if the vineyard had blossomed and if the pomegranates had put forth blossoms. There I will give my breast to you. My soul did not know it. It made me as the chariots of Amenadab. And this is a bridegroom or the friends of bridegroom, depending on the translation that you have. The friends of bridegroom or the bridegroom himself. It says, return, return, Ushalamite, return, return, and we'll look, and we'll look at you. And the bride, the bride responds and said, what, 
would you see in the Shulamite, as it were, the dance of two camps. I know this sounds a bit familiar from what we discussed back in chapter four, where the bridegroom more or less says very similar words. Um, you know, repetition of these praises is to emphasize the beauty that's inside of us. It's not like we forgot, you know, God forgot that he told us these things, but it's actually more for us because sometimes when you go through suffering, we forget the, you know, how God thinks of us, right? Uh, when we sin, we say, oh, I can't believe you know, I'm far away from God. God, you know, doesn't want me. God doesn't do this. But his words are emphasized here, are, are repeated here to, for emphasis. Um, you know, in, in back in chapter four, the, like we said, the bridegroom praises the bride with very similar words. In the beginning of chapter five, we saw that she was lazy, right? And, and in chapter six, he uses, that we just read, he uses the same words only to reaffirm the beauty that he sees inside her. But to tell her, not, that's not the only reason, it was the reaffirmation, but to tell her that his love for her hasn't changed despite her laziness or the ups and downs of her emotions towards him, right? This is, it gives us that confidence. So as, as we spoke about in that last chapter, you know, Christ is faithful to us and his love and he never changes. His divine arms are always open with love to all, regardless of how often I may have neglected him, how often I've been lazy in my relationship with him, how often I've ignored him, blamed him, you know, walked away from him even. You know, he's always there with arms wide open. I, I won't go into what we already discussed in chapter four, since it's more or less the same, but I just want to highlight a few other things from this chapter that we did not cover in chapter four. Um, the first thing is the, the very first verse. So in, in chapter five, we saw the bride describing the bridegroom, the, the bridegroom in detail, right? Uh, and chapter six start off by the daughters of Jerusalem asking the bride about the whereabouts of the bridegroom. You can, you can probably make the connection between that and our own spiritual life. You know, people who aren't close to God or don't know him at all become hungry to know him through us, right? It says in the, in the, verse, in the very first one, you know, where has your beloved turned his attention? For we will seek him with you. Um, you know, it's through his glory shining us, through our love and dedication to him, through him, you know, through seeing, through people seeing him in us, you know, people are attracted to us. And when we give off that fragrance of Christ, um, there are certain people that you meet and the way they talk, the, the way they're so peaceful, the, the way they act, you know, the way they do everything makes you feel like you are dealing with Christ himself. You know, in, in Acts chapter 4, when St. Peter and St. John were in, in front of the council being asked about the healing of the man who couldn't walk, uh, it says that the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled. And so listen to this next part. It says, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, I love that so much. Uh, it's, it's something that you could easily gloss over when you're reading it, but it's you know, being with Christ changes who we are and, and others see him in us and glorify him because of us. Uh, I remember, you know, growing up at, at St. Athanasius that whenever there's, there's this person that whenever I came across him, I always thought, you know, if, if Christ walked this earth today, it would be him, right? And, and naturally, it made me want to, to be around him more and, and learn from him. Um, as you can see, I, I, I was a bad student. I didn't really learn anything from him, but I saw Christ in him, right? I, I was attracted to him. Just as, you know, Christ was on the cross, Christ was on the cross drawing all to him, right? He is capable of working in us to draw others to him as well. Um, Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You know, so 
it begs the question, how are my actions? You know, do they resemble Christ so that others see him in me? Uh, when others deal with me, or you know, do they want to come to know God? You know, because there are many people who want to know God and, and, and wish to know God and the desire to know God, but they are turned away because of the actions that they may see in us, right? So, you know, I, I know when I sat there and, and, and I thought about some of these questions, the answer for me was a big no, right? But that gives me something to continue striving for. It, it's important to not despair during these times and, and, and when we're doing a self-assessment, but, you know, it helps us to uh, persevere and, and God will work in us so that our actions may match his, right? The Holy Spirit will fill us so it may attract others to him. The other thing I want to touch on is our, our, our verses two and three, um, where it says, my beloved has gone down to his garden to the bed of spice to shepherd his sheep in the gardens and to gather his lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He who shepherds his sheep among the lilies. Um, the bride responds to those who are asking her about the bridegroom. And she says that he has gone down to the garden. His garden here represents the church and, and our soul. Uh, Father Tadger says, this book emphasizes the existence of the bridegroom inside the church and inside the soul whom he bought with his blood. He enters the stony heart and changes it into a garden for him. Moreover, he changes it to inner gardens where he gathers the lilies, which carry the characteristics of the bridegroom himself, who is called the lily. So, you know, he went down to his garden. He went down to his church. So if you want to find him, go to church, <laughs> you know, because that's where he gathers everybody. Um, that's where he gathers the lilies because we said we are lilies, right? So out of his humility and love for us, Christ comes to dwell in the church, comes to dwell in our hearts um, as our true bridegroom. And once he's there, he changes us so that we could bear fruit and, and we resemble him uh, and bring others to him, as we just spoke about. Um, I also want to touch about on verses 8 through 10, um, where it says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, and she's the only one of her mother, the choice of the one who bore her. The daughter saw her and considered her blessed. The queens and the concubines will also praise her. Here, Christ is comparing the church with all the heavenly hosts, according to Father Tedros. You know, he says that these may vary in ranks, but the church, which is what Christ purchased with his own blood and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, became his only bride, his perfect one, his dove, right? As we've said before, it's, it's perfect because it's united with him. And this unity is, is through the Holy Spirit, which is why dove is mentioned here. This unity, you know, is, is perfect because in Christ, we are perfect just as he is perfect. This unity is also um, eternal and heavenly, which is illustrated here as the bride says, um, she's the only one of her mother. You know, this mother is, is, is the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, as Jerome, who is one of the church, church fathers says, you know, heaven is waiting on us to be eternally betrothed to Christ. The, the daughters and the queens um, that mentions here are, are the heavenly hosts um, who are praising the church for her love for Christ, praising the church for her beauty in Christ. And that's why, you know, that's why it says, um, you know, who is she? Uh, who is she who looks forth as the early morning, beautiful as the moon, choice as a sun and awesome as the army set in the ray, right? So when heaven sees us, he sees our beauty, uh, which we have through Christ, they praise us uh, for it. Uh, and finally, in, in the last two, the last couple of verses I want to focus on are verses 11 and 12, where it says, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the fruits of the valley, to see if the vineyard had blossomed and if the pomegranates has put forth blossoms. There I'll give my breast to you. My soul did not know it. It made me as the chariots of Aminadab. Uh, in verses 11 and 12, the bride 
says that she goes down to the orchard of nut trees to see the fruits of the valley. According to Origen, uh, again, one of the church fathers, you know, the, the nuts here symbolize the word of God. Uh, if, you, if you think of a walnut or hazelnut, for example, you know, the, the, the shell um, is hard. And according to Origen, he says it symbolizes the literal translation of the word of God or the literal interpretation of the word of God. But once you kind of break, you know, through that shell, once you, you get to taste the goodness of the word of God. So you get the spiritual interpretation of God's words, of, of the law, right? Aside from the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, their biggest issue was their literal interpretation of the word of God, right? Which Christ rebuked them for many times. So here we, we must dive into the inner depth of our hearts, you know, to realize the spiritual meaning and application of the word of God in our life. There, you know, in the depths of our heart, there is where we could see the fruitfulness of the word of God in us. And in turn, we give him our hearts, you know, fully submitting, submitting our hearts to him so that, you know, we continue to be fruitful through his word. Um, that's why it says, you know, if the vineyard had blossomed, the pomegranates had put forth blossoms. So that's, those are, that's, those, that's what's in our hearts. Are we becoming fruitful through his word? Um, and also through his word, we become like chariots of noble people or Aminadab, which means uh, a noble nation, right? It, it, we become righteous. Uh, we become righteous people through God. You know, we become strong. We become uh, patient in the daily fight that we all go through. So it, it's worth asking, you know, how does the word of God manifest itself in my life? Do I pray for the spiritual understanding to really know and understand and apply the word of God in my life? I could read the Bible from morning till night, but if I'm not reading it with understanding, if I'm not reading it with, um, with trying, you know, try, giving my best to apply the words of God in my life, then I'm just reading for the sake of reading, right? Then I'm, I'm not going beyond, um, you know, the shell uh, of the nut. Um, you know, is, is, is God's word fruitful in my life? Is God's word active in my life? Uh, do I use God's words to examine myself? You know, it says in Hebrews, for the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So that's why the word of God is so important in the life of the Christian, in our life, because by it, we become edified, by it, we become righteous and fruitful. The, 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 final, the final verse in the chapter is the, are the friends of the bridegroom calling the bride, excuse me, by name, right? She says, it says, return, to return, O Shulamite, return, return, and we'll look at you. We covered this way back in, in the first session, but Shulamite is the feminine term of, of, or of Salem or Solomon, which means peace. So because Christ, the word of God, the king of peace dwells in our hearts, we are called by his name, right? The, the bride answers. So that's why they, that's why they call her uh, Shulamite. And that's why she's called the Shulamite woman in, in the entire book. Um, the bride answers and mentions you know, it says, what would you see if you were to look at the Shulamite, as it were, the dance of two camps? Um, you know, Father Tedros says in the Hebrew translation, the word double camps means two armies, right? So the Lord describes his church, or really our soul, as bearing the dance of two armies as a, as a sign of victory and triumph. So as we spoke about before, in Christ, we have victory over death. We have victory over sin and, and over the, you know, the struggles that we, that we go through. Um, and we're able to find that victory through his word that abides in us uh, and through the, obviously the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Um, so I, this, you know, this brings us to the close of chapter six. 
Uh, it was kind of quick because, uh, again, a lot of it was a little bit repetitive from chapter four. Um, but I think we, you know, we're, we have two more chapters and, and, and by God's grace, uh, the plan is to uh, bring it home next week.